Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Wade Franson on April 12, 2021. Wade grew up in a dysfunctional family in which he lived with a drunken mother after his parents divorced. He was then kidnapped by his father and then later returned to his mother again, who was still in that same dysfunctional state. He ended up living again with his father and it was then that he became involved in the worldwide Church of God, traveling the world and preaching the coming of the messianic return of Jesus. Wade tells the story of his spiritual journey that ultimately led him to the Baha'i Faith in a three-volume series, each volume having its own specific title. I started the interview by asking Wade if the experience of writing his story was cathartic in any way. So Warren, I was born in Canada of a Swedish father and a teenage Canadian mother who then moved to the United States when I was two. And after that, we were in Washington State, and my father began working in Alaska, leaving my mother there alone for long periods of time. So she divorced him when I was eight, was given full custody, and my father flew down from Alaska one day while my mother was at work, told the babysitter he was taking his children to the mall, except he didn't tell her that the mall was in Sweden. He smuggled us out of the country successfully, which is a dramatic story in its own right, as covered in my book, and then was awarded custody by the Swedish courts, and a two-year legal battle ensued that eventually ended up at the Supreme Court of Sweden. Now, my father had returned to Alaska to pay for all this and split us up with aunts and uncles. Swedish courts ordered him to return to Sweden and set up household, but at the Supreme Court level, he was asked bluntly if he had any plans to remarry. And he said no, because he had, in the meantime, joined a religious group that would be considered a cult by many. And their doctrine stated that if you were divorced, you could not remarry if your then mate was still alive, being that in God's eyes, you were still bound until death. My mother had no such compulsions having married a man she met in a bar and presented herself as the one who could provide a two-parent household to the children. So she was awarded custody, and thus it was that after a two-year international court battle, she was on a plane back to Canada, where she was greeted by her family and the press as a mother bear cub returning successfully having won her cubs back. The only problem was she was so drunk on the flight home, she could not really make it down the steps to the tarmac, became belligerent, and as an 11-year-old at the time, I watched this like an unfolding train wreck. The charade completely ended about two weeks later when her so-called husband left, and she descended into alcoholism such that a year or so later, my 13-year-old older sister had run away from home after one particularly negative situation in which my mother had brought back several male hitchhikers and left them there for days. My younger sister then was at the neighbor's house one morning crying in her nightgown saying she didn't know where her mother was or what to wear 
or what to eat to get ready to go to school. And uh, I was 12 and called into the principal's office and told I wouldn't be going home that day because I was now a ward of the state. I ended up in a an interim home. It's kind of like a temporary orphanage. And my father was eventually awarded custody. After that, as I explain in my book, my life gets weird. And those early challenges and scars would contribute to the weirdness as the story progressed. That's the tip of the iceberg of those traumatic childhood experiences. And in writing the book, to answer your question, it wasn't cathartic because I had spent, I would say, my entire adult life from about the age of 19 in a kind of self-managed therapy, which I don't want to get into in answer to this question, but I had been working through these issues for some 30 years before I started to write the book. So I had a pretty clear idea of where I wanted to go with the story and how I wanted to manage the writing of the story. So it was not cathartic, but it was still revelatory because what I just shared with you about my mother, despite what I just shared, I viewed her as a good mom because of very early childhood experiences. And I always blamed my father for having pulled me away from my loving mother. And in writing the book, I came to reevaluate my parents in a way that frankly surprised me. People would say that my father was a good man and that my mother was a good mother. And that would not be untrue in that my early childhood memories of my mom were a very loving mother who really just loved her children. But I really came to see that my father was a good father in that his actions were really designed to protect the children from the chaos that was life with an alcoholic mother. But as a child, I couldn't see or understand that. And even the people around us in the family relationship, I mean, most people blamed my dad in all this. And so there was a lot of resonance because my dad is kind of a stoic, hardworking, workaholic, life is to be gotten on with, not enjoyed kind of person. But I came to see that my mother was frankly not a good mother at all. She put her children in severe danger. She would do things even when, when we were there with her when we came back in which she would stop to pick up her paycheck with the three kids in the car. And guess what? She was a bartender. So three hours later, we would send in my little sister to drag mom out. And then she would drive us home bleary-eyed at like 15 miles an hour, slowly weaving her way down the streets to get home, you know, completely two sheets to the wind. Those are not the actions of a good mother. From the religious upbringing that you had, can you describe your religious journey that took you from that religious experience you had with your father growing up to becoming a Baha'i? That's one of the main points of writing the trilogy, is to give people insight into what might be considered by some a cult. But for me a religious organization that actually saved my life. And the way in which it saved my life was after the collapse of my mother's marriage to, you know, the person she met in a bar to win her children back, 
it was then at age 12 that I was back with my father who was living in Alaska and was introduced into the full life with the Worldwide Church of God, which was the religious group that I then grew up in. And the Worldwide Church of God, for those who understand a little bit about the Baha'i faith, the Baha'i faith teaches that religion is progressive and that Adam, Noah, Abraham are all divine messengers who guided humanity on its evolution. And for us in the Worldwide Church of God, Moses was critical. We were like Messianic Christians, which may be a concept to some. Messianic Messianic Jews are those who are Jewish by heritage, but who accept Christ. We were Christians who looked backwards to the law of Moses for guidance, in that we didn't believe Christ came to change the law of Moses. We weren't typical Protestants that believed the law was nailed to the cross. We were of the mindset that Jesus was a Jew, he kept the Jewish holy days, he taught people a way of life that consisted in obedience to God, that God gave his Holy Spirit to those who obeyed him, and that included obedience to the laws of Moses. So we kept the seventh-day Sabbath day, we kept these annual holy days with a Christian interpretation, which pointed us forward to the imminent return of Jesus Christ, to return to this earth to bring about a thousand years of peaceful reign called the kingdom of God on earth, and that he was training us to become converted as spirit beings at his return in a kind of version of the rapture, not exactly the rapture, but we would be given spiritual bodies and the spiritual capacity to rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years on earth. And the laws that were enforced within the church are what gave me the stability that I needed and a center to look to with hope and faith. And I had a an experience that will be difficult for some of your listeners to accept, perhaps, in which when I was a teenager, and I was actually now baptized, we believed in adult baptism and full immersion, but I was still struggling with the demons, if you will, that were haunting me from all this tragedy. And I had problems with alcohol and drugs, and I was in a high-speed chase in which the Alaskan state troopers were trying to catch up with me as I was driving 120 miles an hour down the road. And I ran off the road at 100 miles an hour and was taken to jail when they captured me. And I got out on my father's recognizance. You could get that done in Alaska. And I went back to look at the crash site. And there in black and white were black tire tracks on the pavement where I had hit the brakes. And on the other side of a light pole, a big metal freeway light pole in white, were my tire tracks in snow. And there in black and white was a visual picture of my car having passed through that light pole without having damaged the light pole and without having any damage to my car. And I walked around and around and around that light pole and couldn't believe what my eyes were telling me because obviously to me God had intervened, but not because I was being a good boy. He had intervened in some miracle way to save my life. And at that moment, as I stood there, I told God, you are now my father. And I claimed him as my adopted father, because by that time, my relationship with my father was so horrible, and my mother had died, that I literally felt like an orphan, like that ward of the state. And the state, by the way, had also betrayed me in various ways. So I was full of hate and anger and distrust. 
and I claimed God as my father in a very distinct way and committed myself to obedience to him. And then I went to the churches, and that's a whole other story as to how I got in from where I was at and the difficulty I had getting in. And then I turned my life around and I devoted myself to God. But it was from that perspective of having gone back and understood who and what Moses was and having a respect for Moses and Jesus that enabled me later to more fully embrace the ideas of the Baha'i faith in which both Moses and Jesus are esteemed incredibly highly. Many Baha'is won't realize that a lot of Christians have a disrespect for Moses They believe that Jesus came to do away with that old, horrible Mosaic law and introduce grace and freedom from the enslavement to the law. But that's not how we viewed it at all. So did the police notice this miraculous evidence? They didn't. And the reason is, the way that the accident happened, I had turned off my lights in order to take an exit and escape from the state troopers who indeed went sailing by that exit on the freeway. But I then turned my lights back on once I was off to see what was happening, but I was traveling at a hundred miles an hour. And by the way, it was dark Alaskan night. I then realized that this exit had one left turn going under the freeway and one right turn going back on the freeway. And there was a 15 foot embankment. And so realizing that I would be smashing into a brick wall if I tried to go under the freeway and realizing that if I went back on the freeway, they were going to get me in my indecision. And and at that speed, all I did was slam on the brakes, right? And I sailed off the embankment and my car at 100 miles an hour came to rest down quite a ways. The snow piled up into the engine and set off this nuclear explosion kind of head of steam which when the trooper realized he'd been had, came backing up down the other ramp. And so he was probably, you know, 300 yards from where I went off the road when he jumped out, pulled his gun, saw my tracks in the snow. And by the way, in my teenage mind, I was going to hitchhike into town and report my car stolen and get out of this whole thing until I realized I had left my coat in the car and had to come back for my coat because, you know, it'd be hard to claim, oh, yeah, and by the way, my coat was in the car when it was stolen. So in, in all this back and forth in the tracks in the snow, the, the police had come by. He had his gun on me, told me that if I didn't get my expletive deleted back on the road, he'd blow my expletive deletive head off. And so my car was then impounded, and the police never investigated, so to speak, the accident site. It was when I came back later that I retraced the steps and could see exactly in the daylight what had happened. And that's the thing about miracles, and Baha'is know this, and I think many others, Christians and whatnot, know it, is that miracles are actually only intended for a small audience. They are not really intended to make believers of larger audiences. And I certainly never tried to go convince anybody that this story was even true. I knew that it was a deeply personal matter between me and God, and it really didn't matter what anybody else thought about it. It transformed my life, and that's what it was intended to do. So what inspired you to decide to write your story? When I went to the church's university, I was instilled with a vision of this coming kingdom and that we had a role 
to play and that it was our life's commitment to dedicate ourselves to preparing for this and to spreading the message of Christ's imminent return, which we called the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we actually believed at the time that this particular understanding had not been preached for 1900 years, that this understanding had been lost, that the world was not really expecting Christ to return anymore. Some may be familiar with William Miller in 1844 and the Great Disappointment, but we held on to that hope, and it was our message to warn the world that Christ was returning and they needed to repent because the Great Tribulation was coming and all the cataclysmic events of the Book of Revelation. And if we did not warn them, their blood would be on our head. It's similar to what some of the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, some aspects of what they believe, though we were not in any way associated with them. I then caught the vision of this, what we called the Great Commission. And because I spoke Swedish, that was an area of fertile opportunity. Baha'is would call it pioneering. We called it preaching the gospel to the world as a witness, which Matthew and Luke both say that when the gospel is preached to the world as a witness, then will the end come. So we were urgently trying to do that through all of our media outreach, and the church was quite gigantic. We had the number one rated radio and TV programs for decades. We had a magazine of 10 million circulation, and I ended up going to Europe, and I ended up doing stuff behind the Iron Curtain and getting the magazine into West Berlin when the wall came down, and I could go on and on and on about all the stuff I was doing that was extremely exciting. And along the way, I learned German, French, Russian, and because of the experience in Alaska, and because of being behind the Iron Curtain and being in Leningrad when Gorbachev was abducted, because of the kidnapping, and on and on, my life was just literally unbelievable. And I found myself in conversations with people where these things would come up because it was who and what I was and what I was doing in Europe. And three times over a period of six months, I found myself in a conversation with somebody who basically said, you're a pathological liar. Why are you making up these stories? Because, no, I did live in a tent in Alaska for 10 months to get through high school in 20 below weather without water and electricity. I was kidnapped. I was a ward of the state. I was in an orphanage. I, and on and on it goes. And no, I was not with the CIA, <laughs> though some thought I was when I was doing this stuff behind the Iron Curtain in foreign languages that was marginally legal or, in fact, blatantly illegal because we were bringing in large groups of religious people into countries that didn't allow it. So I decided I had to write down my story names, dates, and places. And then, in fact, there was something about my story that was meant to inspire people and cause them to reflect on their own experience and cause them to question their beliefs and their relationship with God and explore what they might have been missing in the events of their own life by virtue of reading this very dramatic, stranger-than-fiction kind of story of somebody else. This is a trilogy, and so had you always envisioned a story <clears throat> being a trilogy, or how did it come out that way? No, I originally envisioned it as two volumes. The first of one would be The Search, and the, and the second one of which would be Finding the Answer. But initial reader reviews were telling me, you need to weave in more detail. We want to know who your mom was. We want to know how this affected your sisters. And I was like, 
at a very breakneck pace. Remember the old Dragnet show? Some of you, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. But my readers, they wanted context. They said, they said we want to know how you felt about this. <laughs> and so I'm like, if I start to do that, this is going to balloon beyond all control. The compromise ended up turning it into three volumes. And it turned out it was a good thing because there were very distinct things being handled in each of the books, both from a literary perspective, the arc of the story, the flow of the story, and to accommodate those people who didn't want to just view a skeleton. They wanted to read a living, breathing human being story, not just some thumbnail sketch of dramatic circumstances. And the first volume was published in 2012, and it's titled The People of the Sign. So how would you summarize this first volume? The People of the Sign, the title, was intended to evoke also that idea of the people of the book, which is a concept for some, and also the fact that every messenger of God brings signs and tokens of who and what he is. So I really wanted to highlight the beliefs that we had, which were all wrapped around that seventh-day Sabbath, because the seventh-day Sabbath is, in my view, the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. God told ancient Israel that by keeping the seventh day holy, they were recognizing the true God who inhabits not only a mountain, because back in the day, right, 5,000 years ago, people believed that gods had power and potency geographically, right? There was the God of this mountain or the God of, of that sea or whatever. And then Israel's God was the God of all the earth. But more importantly, he even inhabited time. He invested the seventh day with holiness. And it was holy time on which people communed with God. And during that day, he revealed himself to them so they could know who the true God, the YWHW, the Tetragrammaton, the Yahweh, the self-subsisting, the I Am, revealed himself to Israel on that day. But more importantly, in this context, Israel revealed itself to him as their people through their obedience. So the first book really evokes that thing that we all have, which is that desire to be special, to be unique. Even in God's sight, from a religious perspective, you know, most religions, they have this to one degree or another, but we had it to an extreme, and it was extremely exclusive right? We were the only chosen and called people on earth. We were the one true church. And the whole book is to sort of get people into the head of what such a devout religious group might be experiencing in their intense, fervent love for God and their submission to God, a fundamentalist fervor. In fact, I was told by one reader that you sound like a terrorist. And we, indeed we were, and were we not cautioned by all the virtues of the Christian faith and the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace? It was against our religion to even vote because we were not citizens of this world. We were completely and totally apolitical. But the fervent heat and the security that we felt in this childlike acceptance, and for Baha'is, this is of interest, and it's important for Baha'is to understand the power of the Mosaic Covenant back when humanity was in its infancy and the 
the power of telling two-year-olds not to touch this because it's a hot stove and it will burn you. And that kind of clear direction and to be childlike, as Jesus said, in your acceptance of God's teachings. All of that is contained in this book. And then to have that sort of shattered at the end when the vision of the church began to fail and falter. And the church, the membership realized maybe this isn't all true because the church splintered in this grand schism. And the arc of the story starts with my whole divorce and then it ends with the church that I was now a minister in and had dedicated my life to enjoying a nasty divorce in which the membership was forced to choose a side in the schism. And I was right back where I started as a child, as that nine-year-old who had been kidnapped and forced to somehow choose between my parents in this battle. There's so much woven into that story, and that's the first volume. And can you briefly describe what that schism was, fundamentally? Sure. So, Herbert Armstrong was the founder of the church. There's a whole lot of tie-ins here that might be of interest to some of the Baha'is in your audience, and also to anyone interested in eschatology and times, the study of religion in the modern era. There have, in fact, been books written on as a case study of this church. So Herbert Armstrong lived well into his 90s, and he had, you might say, control of the church right up to his dying day. And he was viewed to be a special person, the Elijah of the end time. For Baha'is, we know, or we believe that that was the Bob who fulfilled the role of Elijah. Well, the church believed that Herbert Armstrong was fulfilling the role of Elijah to give the advance warning to sound the shofar that sounded on Rosh Hashanah, the day of trumpets, to warn the world that Christ is indeed coming and they had better be ready. When he died without Christ having returned, that in itself was a shock because everyone had expected that he would lead us all right up to that point. But his hand-chosen successor responded to the legitimate complaints and concerns, which can be summarized by Mr. Armstrong, as he was referred to, sounding a new gun lap every five to seven years and asking the people to resume their zeal. It's very important to me for the Baha'is in the audience to approach this topic with respect and not with arrogance or an attitude of superiority looking down at the beliefs of these people. And I was very careful to try to address the issue of whether or not this was a cult versus whether or not it was a group of sincere, dedicated people seeking in the best way possible to understand the truth of the revelation that Abdu'l-Bahá, a central figure in the Baha'i faith, tells every Baha'i, you must know the Old and New Testaments as the Word of God. And what it means to know the Bible as the Word of God, I would submit, is to read some of those texts that in which God says, test me now herewith, prove me now herewith. It's not a matter of superficially reading and understanding, oh, these writings, they came from a messenger of God and they were for a certain time. No, there's power in those words even today. And for those of us in the Worldwide Church of God, we put God to the test. We tested his commandments. And when we obeyed them, he did indeed fulfill his promise, which was to open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on us so rich that we would not be able to receive it. No one will ever convince me that my car did not somehow magically escape that pole and that my life was saved because of 
the fact that I believed in the power of the Word of God, even though I was being disobedient to it, God was my Father and I trusted in Him because of the way in which He had revealed Himself to me through the Bible. So the schism came when Herbert Armstrong died. His successor began responding to some of the legitimate complaints and the exhaustion of the people. And he at first began to introduce a kinder, gentler version of some of the, let's call it the social teachings within the church. But soon enough, what the membership feared, he began to, in their words, water down the truth. He began to move the church toward mainstream Protestantism. We eventually accepted the Trinity, which we beforehand had believed was a a satanic deception, that God was not in fact a trinity at all, and that that was a misunderstanding of the nature of God. Well, then we accepted the trinity because you're basically a heretic in Christianity if you don't accept the trinity, so they wanted to mainstream the church. And the final death throw came when Pastor General Joseph Tkach, who succeeded Herbert Armstrong, gave his famous golf sermon in which he said, you know, it wouldn't be a sin to play golf on the Sabbath. That was too much. By now, the sign had been abandoned. We were no longer the people of God. That was the final blow and led to the big schism. But it had been brewing for a while and there were splinter groups breaking off because the more important thing to mention here is perhaps this idea that you're exclusive and that you can go directly to the Bible, and it's open to individual personal interpretation. Herbert Armstrong, in that sense, he never had this title, he never laid claim to this, but the membership looked to him as the authorized interpreter of the Bible. Whereas, in fact, he would stand at his podium, pound on the Bible, and yell at the audience, don't believe me, believe what you read in your Bible. But then the membership began to interpret it differently and argue about it, and ultimately it led to the fragmentation of the Worldwide Church of God. Would you like to read an excerpt from People of the Sign? I would love to, and this may be of interest to um, all kinds of people in your audience, but there's a specific Baha'i interest here. So when I was a student at Ambassador College, and I was getting my life turned around, and I became zealous for God in a new and different way, Ambassador College had this opportunity to send students to Israel to work on the City of David archaeological expedition, which is just outside of the gates of Jerusalem. And it's literally one of the most prestigious biblical archaeology sites in human history, because we were literally excavating the City of David. That is known as Zion. This was in conjunction with Hebrew University, and it was very, very prestigious. I was accepted to this. That year, and I think it's the only year they did it, they took a boat from Athens to Haifa. And it had to do with a a European tour that took place before for all the students. And so I'd like to read the scene where we are on the boat traveling from Athens to Haifa. As our ship approached the harbor, I eagerly looked over the bow to drink in my first view of the Holy Land. I asked Mr. Page, and Mr. Page, by the way, was the professor of ancient Israel, who was the contact with Hebrew University and who had basically arranged and pulled off this magical experience. Then he accompanied the students. He had also taught us about archaeology and all that stuff. I asked Mr. Page about what by my Alaskan standards was not much more than a hill. This was Mount Carmel, he explained, the scene of Elijah's famous showdown with the prophets of Baal. This was a letdown given the connection I had felt with Elijah 
and the spiritual importance of the Elijah work of the Worldwide Church of God. The only item of note on this baby mountain was a golden mosque-like structure on the side which I asked about. Mr. Page explained that it was the center of the Baha'i faith. I was confused at hearing about the installation of a strange religion on Mount Carmel. This was prestigious spiritual real estate in a country that was clearly a precursor to the nation of Israel that Christ was to establish at his return. The Bible had declared the city of David to be Zion, and I was here to explore the actual remains. The Jews had returned to rebuild Zion, and here on Mount Carmel, the symbol of calling attention to the true God, Yahweh, versus all false gods typified by Baal, was the center of a foreign religion. What was it doing on this holy mountain, associated with the one who would be sent in the end time to prepare the way for Christ's return? I pressured Mr. Page for an explanation. He responded that its location on the mountain held some prophetic significance, but that the church wasn't sure at this time what it was. Such was the mystery of Israel. King David had written the bulk of the Psalms in the Bible and often used the term Selah, to invoke a musical pause, to reflect, to ponder. This was a fitting word to describe what I felt once we disembarked. It's hard to convey in words the power of visiting the biblical sites which our reading had invested with such great spiritual significance. Wade, in 2014, you wrote the sequel called The Hardness of the Heart. So describe this volume for us. Sure. The hardness of the heart is a saying familiar to many Christians in which the Pharisees came often to test Jesus and to try to trap him. And eventually they were able to put him to death based on or cause him to be put to death by the Romans. One of those times of entrapment, it was related to the issue of divorce. And so divorce being a central theme of my life and that first book Frankly, the fear of divorce being the demon that, in that sense, was my biggest demon and the one that possessed me the most, this fear of committing the sins of my fathers, you know, of repeating this pattern of just destroying the life of a child through such traumatic experiences and conveying so much baggage on them. Again, as I was working through this self-therapy to somehow find coherence, and belonging and all of those issues. They tested Jesus on the issue of divorce in which they said, hey, Moses gave us all these excuses and reasons where we could divorce our wives. What do you say? And his answer was, Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so that metaphor describes the point of the second book, which is after the shattering of the Worldwide Church of God and my beliefs. I was going to read a story, but I don't have time. It was my plane ride home at the end of the second book when I was looking out of the window of this plane and looking at the stars and trying to sense the pattern and the connection that I had felt, the coherence and the purpose and the certainty of where my life was heading. And now those stars, they didn't form a picture. They were just random dots. And the second book opens up with me, as I describe it, walking across the shattered, sharp shards of the splinter groups of the Worldwide Church of God. 
And this concept of going back to the beginning, from the beginning it was not so, and rediscovering the original purpose of God. And the central quest of the second book is my pursuit of what I call pure religion for the book of James, where he says, pure religion before God is to visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And that is a great summary of what religion is and should be. And so my second book finds me like Mother Teresa off in India, trying to pursue true religion by establishing a charity of 5013C for homeless children in Chennai. Chennai is a city in India with 10 million people, 2 million of whom were homeless at that time, 400,000 of which were children. So here was my chance to go give to children who were in much, much more desperate straits than I had been as a child. It was a way to try to practice that pure religion in, in a way that was frankly difficult in my own neighborhood, where people weren't as open to the ideas that I had in my head and the way that I wanted to go about things. But I could go to this strange foreign land and serve a desperate humanity who was very eager to receive that help. While there, I experienced Again, challenges, some of them very dramatic. I feared for my life. I ended up visiting an AIDS village because the people I was working with were increasingly taking me off the grid to go serve not just these homeless children, but also these farmers in this community. And then we were hooked up with this desperate group of people in an AIDS village, right, where people were HIV positive and they were collected in a segregated group by the government in India. So I was, of course, imagining a leper colony. I had health issues, which are covered in the second book as well, some serious autoimmune challenges that led to me returning from Europe and coming to America, where I then resigned from the Worldwide Church of God. I was now pursuing a corporate career. And along the way, I'm, I'm now involved in business. So I resigned from the ministry in 1995, long before I became a Baha'i. I then went into business to try to provide for my family. And all this stuff is unfolding in the second book as I'm now an adult, no longer a victim, but still, in that sense, the victim of the divorce of this church that left me not knowing where I belong or what I should do. And I'm off trying to find where God is working. Or if he was no longer working through the Worldwide Church of God, where was he working? Where were the people who were following the sign of the Christian covenant, which I identify in this book to my satisfaction. If we could tell who the people were that were following the sign of Moses, and by the way, that's of interest to Baha'is to dig into that. I don't have time to get into it now, but who are they today, and where are they, and what are they doing, and, and does that covenant still hold any validity? I think these are very important questions for Baha'is who accept Moses as a messenger of God to dig into. And so the Christian covenant also has validity. And where were the true Christians? Where were they at work? The events of the second book, and the reason I was published it in 2014, was I was given a Lifetime Achievement Award at a conference in India inaugurated by the governor of Tamil Nadu, which is where Chennai is. And I was the keynote speaker for five days from the West, paired up with a keynote speaker from the East. At this conference, I was declared by the governor of this state in India with 70 million people to be an eminent American writer. <laughs> and this is one of the great accolades of my life that I wear close to my heart, that this was somehow accepted and respected by this foreign dignity, if you will, in a foreign country where I was dedicating 10 years of my life. Well, not a full 10 years, but the 10 years of this book 
much of it covers that period of sacrifice and service and trying to find my footing and where God was active. So, Way, would you like to read an excerpt from Hardness of the Heart? The section I'd like to read from The Hardness of the Heart is titled Yellow Submarine. And one of the methods that I use to weave in creativity and art into this book is every chapter title and every subheading is the name of a Beatles song. And the reason is, for me, music was the other part of my salvation. I mentioned religion, but music was equally important. By virtue of explaining my thoughts on why music is so important. I'll just read a very quick quote from the introduction to the first book. I'm describing there why I use music in my work. And it's a quote from Sir Thomas Beecham, who said, the function of music is to release us from the tyranny of conscious thought. And I found that music and the words in music spoke to me as a kind of universal language that transcended logic and just the literal meaning of words. And so to enable the reader of the books to have a touch of whimsy and to enlighten some of the passages with an emotional overlay, there's nothing that brought people together from all over the planet like the music of the Beatles. So this section is called Yellow Submarine. And it's about an unexpected baptism trip that I was asked to do while I was in India baptizing people. There was a drought in India during this period of time. So we had to travel for hours to get to a place where we could practice this baptism in full water immersion. As we pulled up to the entrance, a pervasive stench seemed to emanate from the mouth of the great hooded cobra god that overlooked the entrance to the water park. And as if its noxious breath were not enough, it bared its fangs in our direction. As we entered the park, the sun beat down oppressively, and I realized that it wasn't actually the breath of the cobra god, but the land under its dominion that generated the foul odor. Because of the drought, this normally pond and lake-covered area had experienced a tremendous amount of evaporation. Reduced water levels had exposed large tracts of mud to the air and sun. The vegetation in this normally verdant park was dying in the fetid remainders of previously larger and deeper bodies of water and was rotted in the muck at the bottom of the stagnant and shrinking swamp that resulted. An eerie stillness pervaded the area, which seemed devoid of any animals, along with the powerful reek that was causing visitors to steer clear. It was as if Satan, the great deceiver who used false religions to oppress and enslave, had created a strange and foreboding pantheistic park ripe with potential for disease and misery. Winding our way through the park, we eventually got to the public outdoor swimming pool, roughly Olympic in size, and with a diving platform at the far end. The size was the only thing Olympic about this pool. It was made of untreated cement, and the internal sides were covered with algae. My mind began working overtime. The survival chances of any Westerner foolish enough to crawl into that water, much less one as prone to illness as myself, did not seem particularly good. The algae were evidence of a lack of chlorine or any other kind of purification, and who knows what microbes dwelled in the murky pool. They were likely to be as exotic and toxic as what had hit me in the bowels of the ship on the Nile. 
A snake handler might have considered the Cobra God Park to be the mother of all opportunities to prove his faith, but I was under no such illusion. God had no obligation to protect me from serious and even terminal illness. Friends and classmates who had volunteered for Worldwide Church of God and Ambassador International Cultural Foundation programs in Thailand and Jordan had contracted intestinal issues that had plagued them for years. Ministerial trainees in Africa had contracted malaria or other permanent debilitating health problems. During my time in Germany, I had been grateful to serve God in a region free from such environments and experiences. Some evil disease was surely lurking in that pool, and if I were foolish enough to get in it, God might just be willing to let it attach itself to me. This was not a lack of faith. It was pragmatism. It was a realistic assessment of the potential price of being faithful, counting the cost. I would not be the first servant of God to suffer severe tests and trials, even death, in a faithful but perhaps foolishly applied pursuit of God's will. My decades-long struggle with a chronic crippling disease and my years of diligent effort and focus on sorting through medical advice, literature, and self-help options available was fresh in my mind. Having slowly, with God's help, climbed out of the dark pit of serious health problems, I was anything but eager to embrace that kind of pain again. In other words, there was no angle that I could find to make what I was about to do seem like a wise choice. So, Wade, the last in your series is called The Rod of Iron, which was published in 2018. Where does this book take us in your story? Well, it was interestingly, it was on the trip to India when the second book had just been published, and I had decided to turn it into a trilogy. What I didn't share with the audience was there was a kind of punting going on here in which I was struggling with knowing how to end the book and where to go from here. And so when I turned it into two volumes... Initially, I was able to sort of shove three chapters of material as a starting point for the third book, but I had writer's block. And it was while I was there in India celebrating the publication of the second volume in the trilogy. And by now, by the way, I had become a Baha'i. And I was up in the middle of the night praying the long obligatory prayer, jet lagged like crazy, trying to figure out how I was going to address the audiences that were there to hear me speak as a Westerner and asking for inspiration. And I had an epiphany about this problem I'd been struggling with since being introduced to the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i faith believes that the Elijah was actually not Herbert W. Armstrong. It was a man in Iran who was known as the Bab, the gate of God. He declared himself to be the gate of God. When I became introduced to the Baha'i faith, it was the Bob who interested me. It was his words that spoke to me. There was some power in his language that really seemed to me to be the words of the returning Christ. In other words, we spent decades right at that gate, if you will, fervently expecting the return of Jesus Christ. And here I was able to see, and in his language and the words he used, it was so close to the language that we used in the Worldwide Church of God, the things that we had found by diligently studying the Bible and looking to prophecy. And what was most fascinating to me was his name, the Gate of God, Bob L, which I knew to be a city built by Nimrod that 
was building a tower that should reach to heaven and that humanity was of one language and they were united under Nimrod. And God came down to look at what they were doing, the story goes in Genesis 11. And he didn't like what he saw because Nimrod was building a monument to himself and self-aggrandizement. And in the Worldwide Church of God, we recognize that Bob L was man's effort to build a counterfeit to what God wanted, a counterfeit kind of unity. And that when God saw the tower they were building, he called it Babel, which means confusion, the Tower of Babel. And he confused their languages so that they couldn't communicate and they became separated and scattered across the earth. And this is of real importance for Baha'is to be aware when they encounter other Christians and to, again, respect what they believe when they believe that all this New World Order stuff, for them it represents not only Babel and Babylon, but Babylon the Great in the book of Revelation and the end time efforts to resurrect what Nimrod was doing and to bring the world together and have them all be one language. And so I raised this with the Baha'is I was being introduced to. And I said, well, so can you explain to me why you think somebody named the gate of God, Bob L, <laughs> is the person who's going to unite the world and bring about one language when God said he didn't want that at the Tower of Babel? And every Baha'i looked at me like I was crazy, and nobody that I've ever met has ever made this connection. And to me, it was instantly and painfully obvious. And nobody could give me an answer that satisfied me. And while praying in the middle of the night in India, I had an epiphany that gave me the solution. And so you see on the cover of the Rod of Iron, the Apollo launch that took man to the moon, because I, I lay the groundwork in the second book in looking at the book of Genesis where he says God put the greater and lesser lights in heaven to rule mankind. And they get into the topic of rulership and what it means to become autonomous and self-rule and what the kingdom of God really is and how the Baha'i faith is actually working towards its establishment across the peoples of this planet. If the moon, the lesser light, was in heaven then that's how high the tower would have to be, or put more exactly. If one could build a tower to the moon, one would have built a tower to heaven. And so the epiphany that I got in India was, it's the moon landing. The moon landing was man's maturity. Because he said, you will not be able to build this tower. And obviously, if man built it, then something has changed because now he's saying, okay, now you can build the tower. And the nature of the space race between the United States of America and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and why God would allow the first Baha'i temple ever built to be desecrated and destroyed, which was another challenge I had in that, really, you say Baha'u'llah is what he claims to be, but yet the first temple built in his name was desecrated and destroyed by a godless nation? How can you claim that Christ has returned with a rod of iron to rule the nations, when in fact the nations did that? All of these different questions that mattered to me, because 
I come from a fundamentalist place where you can't just discard the things that you don't understand and say, well, it must be an error. The Bible must not be accurate. I continue to ask these questions and dig until I get answers that satisfy me. They may not satisfy anybody else. There's no clergy in the Baha'i faith. There is authority and there's authorized interpretation, but members are allowed to form their own opinions about a variety of things. And these are some of the discoveries that I've made that make sense to me. I'm not saying they're right, but I wanted to write them down in a book for consideration. And so some of these themes then are in the rod of iron and they're the unpacking of the questions that I had and the struggle that I had with coming across the faith behind that mosque-like structure on Mount Carmel and why it was that it was there, the shrine of the Bab that was built in honor of the gate of God. It's interesting, too, because in the Baha'i faith, it's the Bab, which is spelled B-A-B, for those who want to look it up. Of course, he was the precursor to Baha'u'llah, who is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, in one token, but on the other token, it was the Bab who fulfilled all of the prophetic signs of all the religious traditions. And he was called the primal point in which all the prophecies from all of the religious traditions pointed to the Bab. And then from the Bab comes the Baha'is believe is the age of fulfillment of when we are fulfilling the mandate of building the kingdom of God that Baha'u'llah inaugurates. And the Bab has a miraculous martyrdom similar to what happened with Christ. So there's a lot of similarities in the story of the mission of the Bab and the mission of Christ. I appreciate you providing that summary. My books approach these topics from a unique personal perspective. There's no attempt to really explain the teachings of the Baha'i faith. There's only an attempt to show the particular path that I took to get there. In the Baha'i faith, there's this concept of veils, veils that keep us from seeing the light, from approaching God, from knowing exactly which direction to turn to, and then seeing clearly what is revealed when we go in that direction. And one of the biggest veils that's discussed in the Baha'i writings is the veil of knowledge. And I bring this up because there's this Christian statement about it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And as a fundamentalist, as a literalist, I like to understand, well, what, what does that mean? It's a symbol, obviously, but no, there was literally a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. And through that gate, even on the Sabbath day, merchants could go in. But it was so tiny that they had to unpack all the goods from the camel they were riding on, and the camel had to get down on its knees and crawl through the Eye of the Needle. The Eye of the Needle, and then they had to haul the goods in in order to get around this loophole, right, of not conducting business on the Sabbath. But there were some things that were essential. And this is true of Jewish religion. They put laws around the laws, around the laws, to make sure you couldn't possibly disobey. Because it was so important to them to be obedient to God. And that's when the religious leaders and the Pharisees exploited all these 
things, right? But for a rich man to enter the kingdom, the riches that can hinder us, sure, it can be physical material riches, but often it's the knowledge that is the riches. And so for me, I had to crawl through the eye of the needle. And this book explains the way in which those veils of knowledge and the things that had helped me as a child, that had saved my life, that had given me purpose and meaning, but had in themselves become a veil. And so the idea of progressive religion is challenging when one cannot let go of that which one possesses. And the um, analogy of Jesus, the new wine in old wineskins, right? You can't put the new wine in the old wineskins because the wine will expand and crack and break the wineskins and you lose both the wineskin and the wine. And so progressive revelation requires us to be humble and not hold on to those riches that we possess and be willing to let them go. And for me, it was many of the understandings and the awareness and the knowledge, but the richness of looking at things from a new angle and exploring them from a new perspective was immeasurable compared to what I had to let go of. Wade, I want to thank you so much for telling your story and telling us about your work. Thank you so much. Warren, thank you so much for this opportunity. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Wade Franson, a former member of the Worldwide Church of God and now owner of an author-driven publishing company called Something or Other Publishing. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Mm-hmm.